Good evening. Uh, I'm very pleased to welcome Paul Faulkner, who's returning to London after a short while away in Sheffield. He finished his PhD here in London in 1999. 1999 yeah. Since then, he's been a lecturer and senior lecturer at Sheffield. His book, Knowledge on Trust, was published in 2011. And today he's going to talk about the virtue theory of testimony. Thanks, Paul. Thank you very much. Okay, it's great to be here. Um, so, yes, I'm going to present to you a, a virtue theory of testimony. And a virtue epistemology in, in general aims to try and capture both facts about rationality and facts about uh, reliability. But there's two different ways that one can uh, go about doing that. There's two branches of, of virtue epistemology. So one branch is a, uh, just a development of reliabilism. It's uh, reliabilism plus further conditions. And that, that branch of virtue epistemology is uh, Guy Axtell called virtue reliabilism. Now, I'm, I'm not going to talk about virtue reliabilism at all in, in this talk. And when I, uh, when I talk about virtue epistemology, I'm really talking just solely and exclusively about the other branch of virtue epistemology, which is uh, which Gaiac still gives the label of uh, virtue responsibilism. And virtue responsibilism tries to base epistemology on virtue ethics. And it wants to conceive of epistemic virtues, not in the first instance as essentially reliable ways of getting uh, belief, but it wants to think of epistemic virtues on the analogy with uh, ethical virtues. And the idea is if we can think of epistemic virtues on the analogy of ethical virtues, nevertheless we'll manage to given epistemology that happily joins together facts about rationality and reliability. What I want to look at then is I want to look at an attempt to give a virtue, a virtue epistemological theory of testimony and I want to argue that it's not possible to give such a theory and I want to take as um, my starting point, the theory that's developed by Miranda Fricker, particularly in her book, Epistemic Injustice. So in, in later work, Fricker's moved away from this slightly, but I want to particularly focus on the theory of testimony, the virtue epistemology of testimony that Fricker presents in Epistemic Injustice. And I want to argue that uh, there's a, a problem that faces this theory, and this is an entirely general problem for giving a a virtue epistemic account of testimony. And then, but then I want to say that things don't end there for virtue uh, epistemology. Indeed, I want to argue that it's possible to give a kind of virtue epistemology of testimony in that it's possible to give a virtue ethical account of testimony, which nevertheless has a epistemological ramifications. So I want to say that it's not possible to give a virtue epistemic account understood in this responsibilist vein, but nevertheless it is possible to give a virtue theory, but we should understand a virtue theory in an exclusively ethical fashion, but we can get a epistemic consequences out of that. Okay, so let's start off then 
with uh, Fricker's theory. And I want to, yeah, let me, let me describe the epistemology as, as, as Fricker sees it. So as Fricker sees it, there's a theoretical challenge that any adequate theory of testimony has to, has to meet. And the, the problem um, can be um, posed in terms of the, the landscape of existing theory. So according to Fricker, we've got two main theoretical options. Um, one option is that we understand the epistemic standing um, that we get from testimony in reductive terms. So uh, what explains my being justified in believing things on the basis of what other people tell me, what explains me knowing things on the basis of other people tell me, is my ability to formulate inferences to the truth of what somebody has said on the basis of a background of, of belief about when people are, are likely to, to tell the truth and when not. <coughs> and my epistemic standing is then constituted by the adequacy of my grounds and the inferences that I, that I make. So according to this theory, we should understand the uh, testimonial process as essentially an inferential process, and we should understand um, the, the grounds as we should understand the grounds in, in reductive terms. The converse view, according to Fricker, is that our uptake of testimony, our believing what people tell us, is essentially a non-critical process. People tell us things and we simply believe them, and there's an immediacy in our acceptance. If I want to know the directions to some uh, landmark, I'll ask somebody and they'll tell me to go which way and, and whatnot, and I'll simply just process, okay, I need to go which way and whatnot. I won't go through any, uh, I, won't, I won't go through any inference or judgment um, which would ground my epistemic standing. I simply believe them. But nevertheless, I've got some entitlement to this. I have an entitlement to simply believe what people tell us. Okay, so Fricker says that the uh, the theoretical options are essentially these two, and they're, both of them have a, a failing. So the failing of the uh, reductive view is that it makes our testimonial uptake too inferential. It makes our testimonial uptake a, a process of reasoning when it isn't. So it, it gets the psychology wrong, because the psychology is one that we immediately accept what, what people tell us, the problem of the non-reductive view is, whilst it gets the psychology right, we, our acceptance is immediate, it gets the epistemology wrong because it, it doesn't give any role to the extensive background knowledge that we have and which informs our believings of, of others. So the epistemological challenge, uh, uh, according to Fricker, is that we need to explain how the our uptake of testimony is simultaneously psychologically immediate and yet at the same time informed by and supported by all of the stuff that we know about uh, testimony and, uh, and the world at large. And she thinks that virtue ethics offers us a, a perfect model here because virtue ethics offers us a model of how one can form judgments, judgments of the right or the wrong thing to do, which are nevertheless perceptual. 
So, for example, we can think of a, a virtue uh, ethical account um, of a virtue such as kindness. We'll have the kind person simply being forming a perceptual judgment of a, a certain situation where the perceptual judgment is that one ought to do a certain thing, where the, some third party would describe that certain thing as the, the kind thing to do. And what we have here then is we have a judgment, one ought to do something, which is based upon taking in uh, all of the facts about the situation and combining that with one's ethical knowledge. So it's a judgment, but it's perceptually delivered. So virtue ethics seems to be perfectly uh, framed to meet the, this epistemic challenge. So can we apply this kind of model to testimony? So Fricker suggests that the application <coughs> excuse me, of this model to testimony <coughs> starts off by hypothesising that we have a, uh, a capacity for dealing with testimony, a capacity for forming these kinds of judgments. She calls it a testimonial sensibility. So let's hypothesize that we have a testimonial sensibility. And what this sensibility does is it takes as input all of one's background belief and knowledge and one's perception of the situation, the testimonial situation that one is engaged in, and it delivers as output a judgment of trustworthiness. And we should think of this judgment in the similar kind of way that we think of ethical judgments. We should, that is, we should think of it as spontaneous. I spontaneously judge that you are trustworthy in, in what you tell me. And the spontaneity of this judgment is it's, it's, uh, it could be characterized as a perceptual judgment. I just see you as, as trustworthy. And, it's, and even though the perceptual judgment is, this perceptual judgment is informed by everything that I, I know, my background of knowledge, you couldn't encode this background into any process of inference. There's no major lemur which takes the form, people of this kind are trustworthy. Um, there's no, it, it, the, the judgment can't be codified into an inference. It's... It's, it's much more sensitive uh, than that, or even a, a, a body of inferences. It's, genu it's a genuine case of uh, seeing somebody as trustworthy where the, the background knowledge doesn't inform the judgment in uh, an inferential fashion. It just provides a capacity to see. It provides a capacity to tell when, when people are trustworthy and not, when not. And this judgment is reason-providing because... If I judge that somebody is trustworthy, and the judgment of trustworthiness here is understood in an, an epistemic sense, so it, it amounts to, is likely to tell me the truth, or is reliable in this kind of domain, then what I have is I have a reason for believing what they tell me. So the hypothesis of the testimonial faculty is the hypothesis that we have a capacity to make spontaneous judgments of trustworthiness which is informed by our background of knowledge and then gives us a reason for uh, believing what people tell us. And the hypothesis then is that this faculty underlies our uptake of bits of testimony. So it underlies our uh, trusting, where I'm using trusting there just in a sense of uh, believing bits of testimony.
Okay. <coughs> so, how is this a, uh, a virtue epistemology account? How do, how do we get to epistemic virtues? So epistemic virtues are meant to join together both rationality and reliability. Well, what we've got here is we've, uh, uh, we've got the, the rationality bit. If my testimonial uptake is based upon a judgment of trustworthiness, then that gives a, an explanation of its, of its rationality. It's, it's reasonable for me to believe as I do insofar as my beliefs are based upon the judgment that you're trustworthy or thereby more likely to, to trail the truth or not. So we've captured facts about um, rationality. So we, we're allowed, we're entitled to, to, to speak about virtue, epistemic virtue, if our uptake based upon this judgment is in addition reliable. So is trust, when it is grounded on a judgment of trustworthiness based upon the operation of this sensibility, if this judgment is a reliable judgment, if the testimony of sensibility is a reliable judgment, uh, sorry, if the testimony of sensibility yields reliable judgment, then we can think of the operation of this sensibility in, uh, we, we can speak about it as the operation of a virtue. And here Fricke is sensitive to the fact that there can be false beliefs feeding into our testimonial sensibility. We can be wrong in our judgments of trustworthiness. So the testimonial sensibility, which is meant to yield uh, spontaneous judgments, isn't going to be sufficient for reliability, and so it's not going to be sufficient for the operation of a virtue in itself. What further needs to be the case is that it needs to be corrected. It needs to be corrected for error. So and the error here is if we're, one's too hasty in one's trust, or if one is misguided in the beliefs that inform one's trust. Um, so what virtue then requires is it requires us monitoring our judgments and correcting them for error. Yeah. And what this can then require is it can then require a shift from a spontaneous judgment of trustworthiness to a more reflective judgment. So what the monitoring process does is it should, uh, it should be an epistemic safeguard which ensures reliability by on occasions when uh, a judgment is, uh, when occasions where it matters or on occasions where one's likely to uh, uh, be ro go wrong because of some false belief, it should kick the audience out of uh, reflective judgment, kick the audience out of spontaneous judgment into reflective judgment. And then a, uh, a particular um, a particular feature of uh, Fricker's account, and which is where the focus on, on uh, epistemic injustice uh, comes in, is that she's um, at pains to, to characterise one particular testimonial virtue. And uh, this is a testimonial virtue of uh, testimonial justice, where justice aims to identify false beliefs which are um, based upon prejudice. So she identifies a particular virtue, which is the virtue of identifying prejudice-based uptake, and giving people too much credibility or not enough credibility um, based, uh, based on prejudice. Okay, but I'm not 
not particularly interested in that aspect of the count, more the, the, the general the form of it. And in terms of its general form, the virtue of testimonial justice is just one of a collection of virtues which is meant to play the epistemic role of ensuring that judgment as a whole is reliable by shifting the audience out of spontaneous mode into reflective mode on those occasions when in error is likely. Okay, so that's the virtue epistemological uh, theory um, based upon virtue ethics. What I want to do now is I want to sketch a criticism of that theory, which starts with a criticism of a virtue ethical account and, and, and amounts to the idea that amounts to the claim that this criticism of virtue ethics applies to its application in the epistemic domain, and then I'll uh, consider how, how one can meet this criticism. Okay, <coughs> so the criticism I have in mind here is the one that was uh, articulated by uh, Bernard Williams, and it was, he was articulated with his idea of the hyper-traditional society. So what Bert Bernard Williams uh, has us imagine is he has, has us imagine a, uh, a member of a hyper-traditional society proceeding exactly as the virtue ethicist hypothesizes. That's to say they make spontaneous judgments of the, of, of the correctness of certain courses of action. They decide that they ought to do this or not do that. And they do that through uh, forming perceptual judgments, taking in their circumstance. But then this hyper-traditional society, which isn't much given to reflection, encounters a different society with different, uh, which is prone to make different ethical judgments in the, in, in the similar circumstances. And then the question is uh, raised, is what's the best explanation, um, what's the best explanation for the ethical judgment that one is making. You know, how, can, how can one explain ethical disagreement? Yeah. And with the ethical disagreement, the possibility that one's spontaneous judgment might be, might be false. And what William suggests is that the, the best explanation ceases to be um, matters of objective fact, and it now becomes matters of, of culture artifact. Uh, what, what best explains one's making the judgment that one does is that one has the thick ethical concepts that one has. That, so it's, it's one's having this set of concepts rather than one's responding to how things in, in, in fact are. And William suggests that this then threatens the availability of spontaneous ethical judgments because it, it's... Uh, Reflection undermines knowledge, is, uh, uh, is, is his conclusion, because it undermines our ability to think in terms of those thick ethical concepts. Because we can no longer think that they are picking up features of objective features in the world. Okay, so I think we can apply a, a similar problem to the, the case of epistemology. So one of the... Uh, one of the illustrations that uh, Fricka gives is taken from um, the talented Mr. Ripley, 
And in the, in the story of this hand to Miss Ripley, you have, uh, you know, I'm not going to remember the main characters. All I'm going to remember is it's Jude Law, which is inadequate. But that'll do. Jude Law was, was, uh, was, uh, was done in by the... Dickie, thank you. That's right, yeah, thank you. So Dickie was done in by um, the talented Mr Ripley. Um, and Marge Sherwood, Dickie's fiance, knew this. Or she had suspicions and good reasons for being suspicious. And she was trying to tell that to Dickie's uh, father, Herbert Greenleaf. But Herbert Greenleaf wasn't sensitive to the truth of what she was saying. He wasn't sensitive for her as somebody who could tell this information. Um, he responded to her in a prejudiced fashion. And so in, in, in Fricker's term, his testimonial sensibility had misfired. He, he failed to demonstrate the, the virtue of testimonial justice. He was, he was just prejudiced. He didn't, he didn't listen to Marge. Okay, suppose that Herbert Greenleaf um, he doesn't have the, the resources to realise his error, but suppose that he does recognise his error eventually, and he recognises he's, he's responded with prejudice, he recognises that he made an immediate judgement, a spontaneous judgement, which was just distorted. What should be the position of someone like Herbert Greenleaf, having recognised this systematic distortion? Well, it seems to be a parallel position to the person, the member of the hyper-traditional society that encounters a different uh, way of viewing things. And the best explanation seems to be that, look, he's the previous agreement between him and his mates that Marge Sherwood was, uh, um, it was, uh, was, uh, had her female intuitions, which were biased, now just seems to be a, a cultural artefact, a... Uh, uh, a product of inherited prejudices. It doesn't seem that he's being sensitive to any facts of the matter. And that should similarly threaten the availability of spontaneous judgment. If spontaneous judgment can be so misguided, shouldn't you always, shouldn't one always be moved to making reflective judgments? Yeah. But the problem is, if one is always moved to making reflective judgments, then a theoretical space that Fricker identified is, isn't available. Because if, one's, if one should always be moved to reflective judgments, then it seems there's no space for the idea that you can have immediate, spontaneous judgments which are epistemologically um, adequate. OK, now, I think it's possible, what I want to do now is uh, I want to outline a, a response to the ethical problem and I want to consider how one can apply that response to the epistemic situation. So the response to the ethical uh, problem I want to look at is McDowell's and it's uh, embodied in, in this quote. So McDowell says... Um, defending the idea of the uh, virtuous sensibility, he says, look, well, it may be nothing more would be in question in any particular appeal to a determinate conception of how relevant uh, matters are rightly considered than confidence in some part of an ethical outlook. So faced, the hyper-traditionalist, faced with disagreement, what they, maybe what we need to recognise is in order to see matters rightly, 
they need to have those particular thick ethical concepts. And if they need to have those particular thick ethical concepts in order to see matters rightly, then the right response to disagreement is just to be confident in the, the judgment that is made through the spontaneous application of those ethical concepts. Okay, so I'm going to use um, the confidence throughout in this talk, but I just need to flag that, slightly confusingly, uh, Williams' solution to the same problem is to speak about having confidence in one's ethical, ethical outlook. Uh, but Williams' uh, William solution, William solution is not McDowell's, and Williams' notion of confidence is not McDowell's notion of confidence. So I want to use uh, confidence in, uh, uh, in, in McDowell's sense. And confidence here amounts to something like being sure. Yeah. So I want to use confidence in the sense of being sure in one's uh, ethical outlook. Okay. Is this response uh, plausible in uh, any way? Um, well, I think it is, and I think one could illustrate it. And I want to give you an illustration now um, from the Brothers Karamazov, which is useful for my talk because it's going to introduce two notions of trust, which are then going to be essential to the virtue ethical theory that I'm going to end up developing shortly. Okay, so the Brothers Karamazov involves, uh, well, well, the bit of it I want to focus on uh, involves two characters, uh, a merchant called Trifonov and a lieutenant colonel, and they have a, they've got a, a fairly happy uh, relation, and the uh, relation, the, the lieutenant colonel is stationed a distance from Moscow, and he gets money every month, which he uses to buy provisions for his garrison, um, and then provided the book's balance at the end of the month, then, uh, then everything's fine. And so what he does is he loans the money out to the merchant, and the merchant takes the money to the market, engages in uh, mercantile uh, wheeling and dealing, makes, so makes a sum, pays the uh, lieutenant colonel back, and plus some interest for the loan, and plus a gift from the market just to, uh, just to keep the, the friendship and the, the, the smooth running of things going. Okay, so here's a, uh, here's a couple of quotes. Um, that's probably too small for you at the back. Um, it's quite small for me on my screen. Okay, during the past four years, the money, every time after the authorities had been through the accounts, used to disappear for a time. Lieutenant Colonel used to lend it to a merchant of a town, an old widower by the name of Trifonov, a man with a big beard and gold spectacles, whom he trusted implicitly. Trifonov used to go to the fair, do some business there, and on his return, immediately return the whole sum to the Lieutenant Colonel, bringing with him a present from the fair, and with the present, the interest on the loan. Okay, so things proceed along in a, in a happy fashion. There's an implicit trust uh, but, uh, existing between the lieutenant colonel and Trifonov, until the lieutenant colonel gets recalled to Moscow. And when he gets recalled to Moscow, what happens is Trifonov just keeps the final loan. And, uh, and when uh, Trifonov doesn't give him the loan back, 
The Lieutenant Colonel rushes round to his house, and uh, here's what Dostoevsky says. Lieutenant Colonel rushed to his house, but all the reply he got from him was, I've never received any money from you, and couldn't possibly have received any. After all, an upstanding man like you, you wouldn't be lending me money, would you? Um, and the story continues with the uh, Trifonov being... Sorry, Lieutenant Colonel being hauled over the coals, losing his status in the town, and it doesn't go very well for him. Okay, so, as I want to imagine the story, so that's the story is told by Dostoevsky. As I want to imagine the story, they both have different attitudes to their relation. There is implicit trust between them, but the trust means different things to each party. So, as I want to imagine it, the Lieutenant Colonel regards uh, Trifnoff as a, as a friend, and he's in a position to help a friend out, so he does. But Trifnoff moves in a, a different ethical world. He gives the present to the Lieutenant Colonel, not as a sign of friendship, but just as a way of uh, smoothing their relation. And their relation to him is a, essentially dictated by interest. So there's trust uh, between them. Um, the lieutenant trusts the colonel, and Trifonov trusts. Uh, sorry, lieutenant colonel trusts Trifonov, and Trifonov uh, trusts the lieutenant colonel. They trust one another to behave in dependable ways, but the way that they trust one another is quite different. Trifonov is working merely with the concept of interest, and he can see that it's in the lieutenant colonel's interest for their relation to continue. And so he can expect the Lieutenant Colonel to give him a, a further loan. All right, so let's just imagine they trusted each other in a different way. Okay, if they trusted each other in a different way, what should the Lieutenant Colonel say to Trifonov when he goes and knocks on his door? And he's, and he's saying, look, where's my loan? Uh, that I, I, need to, I, need, I need the monies to balance the books. What should he, he sh say to, to Trifonov? Well, I think that if he was confident in the kind of sense that I think McDowell is identifying, that is a sense of being sure of his own ethical outlook, he should say that Trifonov's done the wrong thing and he's looked at things in the wrong way. And in looking at the things as he does, he's failed to appreciate certain facts. He, 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 in not having the thick ethical concepts that Lieutenant Colonel has, Trifonov has failed to appreciate certain objective matters of fact. He's failed to appreciate the facts of their friendship. Um, and he should look at it the way the Lieutenant Colonel does. And nothing should move Lieutenant Colonel to thinking that uh, he's looked at the wrong way. He might curse his naivety, of course. He might, uh, he, he might, uh, he might curse his naivety. He'll obviously have lots of resentment. But Essentially, he would think that Trifonov was, was looking at things the wrong way and doing the wrong thing. And that's what confidence would amount to. Confidence would amount to that uh, Trifonov, operating with the concept of interest, was missing out on how things are in not having uh, the concept of trust, let's say. Okay, so is that... So that illustrates, I think... Um, the, the kind of notion that McDowell wants, does that vindicate the McDowellian response to the problem of disagreement? Um, 
Well, I'm, I'm going to just leave that question hanging. Williams certainly doesn't think it vindicates. He, he, according to Williams, he thinks that... Williams had a, a nice quote, which I should have written down, uh, something, along to the, something along the lines of, once we've uh, appreciated the extent of the problem, uh, simply asserting that we're right and the others are wrong doesn't get us anywhere. So uh, Williams certainly had a more nuanced notion of, of, of confidence. Um, but listen, I'm, I'm more interested in whether or not we can have an epistemic analogue of this response to the epistemic problem of disagreement. Um, and I think that in the epistemic case, there's more plausibility to the confident response, and there's more plausibility to the confident response because there does seem to be an objective matter that, we're, that the testimonial sensibility is responding to. So if the testimonial sensibility is, is yielding a judgment of, of trustworthiness, what trustworthiness in this epistemic sense amounts to, is it just amounts to that the speaker's likely to tell you the truth, that the speaker is reliable in this domain. And reliability seems to be a matter of objective, well, reliability is a matter of objective fact, and therefore there seems to be, uh, it, it seems that one is more of a, it, it's, there's greater scope to be confident that one has got that matter right, and that what explains disagreement isn't, um, cultural artefact, but another party has, has got the matters wrong. Um, so the trustworthy speaker is meant to be the one who, for whatever reason, is likely to speak truly, so that their uh, um, um, so trustworthiness is a matter of reliability. And Trifonov was trustworthy up to a point. Up to the point when Lieutenant Kona was called back to Moscow, he was entirely reliable. Um, so if we think that um, trustworthiness is just a matter of reliability, this seems to be an objective feature. So it seems that there's greater grounds for the confident response to the problem of disagreement. OK. Moreover, I think that we've got reasons to be confident. Because if we were unable to tell when speakers were trustworthy, if our judgments of trustworthy by, were by and large uh, in error, then that would seem to amount to an insinuation of scepticism with respect to this epistemic domain. It would seem to amount to the view that we couldn't acquire knowledge from other people, but surely the epistemic starting point is to explain how we do acquire knowledge from other people. So epistemic confidence seems to be a much simpler affair than uh, ethical confidence. And so the problem of disagreement doesn't seem to be such a, a deep problem in the epistemic case. One should just allow for confidence in judgment. OK, so does this then vindicate the uh, virtue reliabilist position? Well, I don't think it does, because Whilst I think it's true that one can be confident in one's judgment generally, confidence in judgment generally doesn't amount to confidence in spontaneous judgment. So the way that uh, the virtue uh, reliabilist or the virtue epistemology runs is that we make spontaneous judgments and then on occasions 
we have uh, corrective, then, we have, then, then, then coupling, going, running alongside our spontaneous judgments, we have corrective virtues that can shift us into reflective judgment. So the argument that we, uh, that we, that we must be able to pick up on when people tell us the truth by and large supports confidence in judgment generally. But confidence in judgment generally doesn't amount to confidence in spontaneous judgment and indeed would only carry over to imply confidence in spontaneous judgment if judgment generally is spontaneous. Okay, so is judgment generally spontaneous? Well, it might be if we were like uh, Herbert Greenleaf, continually making prejudiced judgment, but then we wouldn't be entitled to confidence and then sceptical conclusion would seem to be the right one. So we can't even say that confidence and judgment generally carries over to spontaneous judgment if judgment generally is spontaneous. We also need to say confidence carries over only if judgment is generally spontaneous and it's okay in that judgment is generally spontaneous. Now, the opposite, of course, of Herbert Greenleaf will be the case where we were perfectly virtuous. If we were perfectly virtuous, then we could be uh, confident in our spontaneous judgment. But once we've acknowledged facts about prejudice, what we've acknowledged is that we're not perfectly virtuous. Okay, so are we then entitled to confidence in our spontaneous judgments? Okay, so here I would make a proposal for the aspirational audience, that is for someone who uh, isn't, let's say, uh, like Herbert Greenleaf, entirely unreflective, is not the, the version of the, uh, the epistemic version of the hyper-traditionalist, um, nor is he the perfectly virtuous audience, but someone who uh, is prejudiced but tries to correct it, the kind of audience that, that Fricker thinks that we all are, for the aspirational audience, um, confidence in our ability to make judgments of trustworthiness generally would carry over to confidence in spontaneous judgment only if there can be some background presumption that speakers are trustworthy. If there was some background presumption that speakers were trustworthy, then... <coughs> that it would be easy to explain why our spontaneous judgments were good. Because in effect, they would simply amount to the judgment that things were working okay. Yeah, they wouldn't, the judgment wouldn't need to be substantive if there could be a presumption of trustworthiness. It could simply amount to some form of monitoring, effectively. Okay, so what I want to argue now is, in order for, effectively, in order for us to be confident in spontaneous judgment, and therefore in order for the shape of this theory to be viable, we need to have, we need to endorse an epistemic presumption that speakers are trustworthy. However, I think for the very kinds of facts that Fricker is, uh, wants to, uh, is keen to uh, draw our attention to, we can't have any such epistemic presumption. Okay, so what I'm thinking about here is, is prejudice. So uh, prejudice, 
I think is a uh, could be correctly it could be uh, uh, defined as some uh, some bias in belief that serves interest. Um, so if we think of prejudice in that way as a bias which is serving interest, identifying that prejudice can be uh, endemic in our communication shows that communication itself is situated in a, in a nexus of practical interests. But then if we think that communication is situated in a, uh, in a practical domain where uh, speakers and audiences have interests, well, what are, the speak what are the practical interests that speakers and audiences have? Well, I mean, of course, they're going to be various, right? And they're going to be as particular as the... Um, whatever particular set of audiences, speakers, and audiences have. But I think we can strip away some of the particularity and identify basic interests that both speakers and audiences have, basic practical interests that they have in the testimonial exchange. Um, and I think that once we identify these uh, practical, these basic interests, where they're going to be at odds with one another. They're going to be orthogonal with one another. So what is an uh, audience's basic interest in a, in a conversation as to the facts? An audience's basic interest is getting a bit of information. Yeah. And, uh, and if we have the case of Marge telling, um, telling uh, Herbert Greenleaf that, that, that Dickie is, should, he should investigate Dickie, Dickie's suspicious, um, Herbert Greenleaf's prejudice is, 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 is undermining his basic interest in the exchange. He, he, he has got a basic interest in finding out the facts, and his prejudice is, is defeating that. Um, but what about speakers? Well, speakers' basic interest, well, sometimes, it could, sometimes we can have a particular interest in telling people things. And we might have a particular... We, there's all sorts of reasons we can have a particular interest in telling people things. But the basic interest we have in telling people things is getting people to think and feel stuff. So why does Marge tell Herbert Greenleaf that Dickie's suspicious? Well, because her basic interest is she wants him to investigate Dickie. But if audience's basic interest is getting a bit of information and speaker's interest is influencing audiences, then they've got different interests, different basic interests in the, in the communicative exchange. So that would imply that in the basic case, an audience is going to need a reason for thinking that the speaker's purpose in communicating is informative. Um, but what that means is that prejudice doesn't... Prejudice isn't, doesn't merely illustrate a fallibility in our testimonial sensibility... <laughs> It also tells us something about the testimonial exchange, which says that we, the judgment of trustworthiness that rationalises uptake has to be substantive. It can't merely be a, a trivial one that everything is, is being okay, everything is okay. And that's to say that there can't be the presumption, epistemically, there can't be a presumption of trustworthiness. Okay, so... I think that epistemically, there can't be a background presumption that speakers are trustworthy in the epistemic sense. 
Yeah. And I think this is so because of a uh, facts highlighted by the uh, our recognition of prejudice. And as a consequence of that, confidence in judgment generally can't amount to confidence in spontaneous judgment. But if we can't be confident in spontaneous, if we can't be confident in our spontaneous judgment, once we've recognised that our spontaneous judgment is open to systematic uh, biases, then the, the the space that the, the the virtue ethical theory sought to occupy isn't isn't available. Okay, but I don't think things end there for the uh, virtue. Uh, virtue theory because whilst I don't think that there's any grounds for epistemically presuming speakers are trustworthy I think that we do act we in fact do presume speakers are trustworthy we don't have any epistemic grounds for this presumption but nevertheless we make it we make the presumption that speakers are trustworthy epistemically we don't have any grounds for this presumption but I think that the presumption that we're making isn't an epistemic presumption. It's rather a, an ethical presumption. So it's not merely the presumption that speakers are reliable, understanding uh, trustworthiness here in a, a thin epistemic sense, but it's a, a, a fuller, more ethical presumption of trustworthiness, namely that the speakers have certain reasons for saying what they do. So we're presuming that speakers are trustworthy, not merely in that they're uh, likely to tell us the truth, but rather we presume they're trustworthy and that we presume that they say what they do for certain reasons. Where the presumption here is that they say what they do because they're trying to give us information. They're not simply trying to influence us. They're rather responding to our need for information. So I think that uh, now I'm kind of just sketching the shape of the theory at this point. So I, th I think that <coughs> we should understand trustworthiness in, a, in a, a thicker sense as saying something about speaker's motivations in a way that Trifonov wasn't trustworthy, even though he was trustworthy in a thin sense that he, up to a point he could be relied upon. And trust, again, I think we should understand in a, in, in a thicker sense, uh, the, in a way that uh, uh, the lieutenant colonel trusted Trifonov to have certain motivations. And I think if we think of trust and trustworthiness in a, uh, a thicker, more ethical way, we can conceive of these as ethical virtues. So we can conceive of trust and trustworthiness as ethical virtues. And I think that in trusting someone, we make the presumption of trustworthiness. And I think trust gives us a, a reason for believing what people tell us. And this reason is nevertheless good, given the shape of our society, if you like, given that we have the thick ethical concepts that we do. OK, so that's the, the shape of the theory. I've got a, um, uh, two more slides, and I'm going to just try and fill the theory out a little bit more in the, in the last two slides. OK, so first of all, that trust and trustworthiness are one should think of as, vir as virtues in the, in the ethical sense. Well, 
for exactly the kind of uh, reason that uh, Fricker suggested we can think of the testimonial sensibility as a, uh, a virtue or we can think of uh, kindness as a virtue, we can think of trusting and being trustworthy as a virtue because what's involved in trusting and being trustworthy is involved in seeing a testimonial situation in a certain light, uh, seeing the testimonial situation as uh, giving certain reasons. So um, I ask you the directions, and you see that as me asking you the directions as giving you a certain reason for telling me something, the reason being that I need to know where such and such a uh, landmark is. So insofar as we see the, the testimony situation or the trust situation as one where we have certain reasons for action, then we can, um, that fits in with the, the perceptual aspect of a virtue talk. Deliberating in a certain manner. So if somebody tells you something, um, you make certain presumptions about the reasons that they have for telling you. When things go smoothly, right? You, you presume that the reason they have for telling you what they do is that they, they're being informative. They're not trying to influence you. Um, they're not just merely trying to get you to do stuff. Um, being prone to certain imaginations. You, are, you can imagine the, the, the feeling of being let down were things to turn out otherwise. Um, or the, the, you can imagine uh, the kind of uh, resentment that you might experience were thing to turn it otherwise. So the, the kind of the perceptual side of it, be seeing, seeing things in a certain way, deliberating in a certain way, being prone to certain imaginations, naturally fits in with the virtue talk. Um, and this is so we can, this is, we can naturally capture trusting and being trustworthy as virtues. And there's also the kind of the first person, third person difference that, that, that fits, fits in with the virtue language. So if, um, if you ask me directions and um, I respond in a trustworthy fashion, my reason for telling you where you need to go isn't I'm trying to be trustworthy, it's you need, to, you need this bit of information. So trusting and being trustworthy don't figure as, as our reasons for acting, there are rather descriptions that will be applied from the, the first-person perspective. What figures as our reason for acting is that people have certain uh, informational needs or that we're presuming that speakers are uh, telling us things for certain reasons. Okay, let's... So, what I've done, what I've done is I've... Um, I've argued against a, a virtue epistemological theory of testimony. I've said that um, the virtue epistemological theory fails because there's no epistemic grounds for a presumption of trustworthiness, which is what would be needed if we could have any kind of confidence in our spontaneous judgment. But nevertheless, I've said that we do make presumptions of trustworthiness, but we should not conceive of these as epistemically grounded, but rather as ethically grounded. I've then tried to show you how the, these presumptions of trustworthiness fit in with a conception of trusting and being trustworthy as ethical virtues. Now I need to remake the connection with epistemology. And this is, uh, 
going to be uh, overly uh, brief um, for what's required. Okay. So I think that a presumption of trustworthiness, namely the presumption that somebody has certain reasons for action, is available as broadly as uh, the attitude of trust is available. Okay. So when is the attitude of trust available? Well, <coughs> that's a... Uh, that's, that's going to be partly determined by people's individual psychology, but essentially it's determined by us moving in a society which has trust as a, a thick ethical concept, and it's that which makes trust uh, available to us as, a, as an attitude. Um, but, this, but the presumption that's made interesting, I think, rationalises uptake, uh, because it forges a, it identifies a truth-based explanation of, of utterance. So, um, if I trust you when you tell me uh, where the the monument is, uh, and I'm conceiving of trust here in a in an ethical, thicker ethical sense, what I'm doing is I'm expecting you to have certain reasons for utterance, and I'm presuming that you're having those reasons. Where those reasons are going to be that you're just responding to my need to know where that uh, landmark, landmark is. And if you are responding to my need to know where that landmark is, then, then what I'm doing is I'm uh, identifying the, the truth of your... I've got an explanation of the truth of your utterance that goes via your uh, uttering for certain reasons. But then if I've got an explanation, a truth-based explanation of your reasons for utterance, the presumption I'm making is going to rationalise me believing what you say. Um, but of course, the presumption is a very, very weak reason, right? It's uh, it's uh, it's going to rationalise uptake, is it? But is it going to be epistemically any good? Well, I think it can be epistemically good because, given that the way that society is, given as a matter of fact, we have the thick ethical concepts that we do. The, the truth-based explanation of utterance that's presumed to hold when you trust someone does by and large hold. So what you're doing is you're, you're, you're in making the presumption of trust, you're identifying an explanation of utterance which by and large holds, holds good. And if the presumption is, is, is holds good, and it's not an accident that you make this presumption, right? Because you're making a presumption for the same, the, re, the same reason that explains why it's hold good explains why you make it, because you're living in a society with these thick ethical concepts. As a consequence, the reason for uptake isn't merely rationalising, it's uh, an epistemically good reason. So a presumption that we make which is uh, ethical in its origin, I think nevertheless identifies a, a reason for believing what people tell us which is uh, an epistemically good reason, and that uh, reconnects the, the virtue ethics I've, I've tried to sketch with the uh, epistemology. Okay, that's me done. <laughs>